I was 15 years old and very excited. I'd taken one of those career aptitude tests and I was looking forward to seeing what it would suggest for me. By that age, I'd moved on from wanting to be a train driver and I'd never thought about being an astronaut. I didn't think that was realistic. But it left a whole range of skills and professions for me to pursue. I couldn't wait to get my results and discover the future that I had ahead of me. Well, the results came out, and I must admit they were not quite what I was expecting. There, at the very top of the list, as the strongest recommendation, was a career as a leather worker. Now, I've heard sillier ideas, and at least I'm not vegan or anything like that, but it did take me just a little bit by surprise. It didn't seem a perfect match for my skill and my aptitude. And as someone who grew up in inner London, I was more likely to see animals at the zoo than I was in some kind of workshop. It wasn't until much later that I realised I had a kindred spirit as a leather worker. A reasonable chunk of the New Testament of the Bible was written by the Apostle Paul. And Paul worked as a tent maker in some of the cities that he visited. Uh, not his primary career path, perhaps, uh, not what he might be remembered for in the history books, but noble and honourable work nonetheless. Back in the ancient Roman and particularly Greek culture, citizens would have looked down on manual labour. They were a culture where the elites were focused on the mind. Thinking and speaking were seen as the only valuable occupations. So philosophers and politicians and playwrights were the celebrities of the day. It's easy to overlook how countercultural a figure the Apostle Paul would have been in those times. If he stayed any length of time in a city, he would take up some casual work as a labourer. A tent maker would have been a leather worker, a hard, a sometimes messy job that required some strength and effort. It was the kind of job that rich citizens would have avoided, leaving it to servants or even slaves to do. And Paul himself, arguably the world's most influential thinker aside from Jesus, could easily have felt that his time was better spent teaching and preaching and writing letters. In fact, his reputation may have been enhanced if he had done so. But he took jobs and worked, and he commended work in his teaching. He led by example, and it means we ought to pay attention to what he has to say to us on the subject too. So listen again to verses 9 to 12 of 1 Thessalonians 4, and listen out for what Paul has to say about work and ambition. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, 
so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Well, I wonder what you would say your ambition in life is. I think these verses pose a big challenge to our assumptions and our expectations. Not big, glittering successes for us, not fame and fortune, not wanting plaques put up and statues sculpted in our image. No, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You see, there is a dignity and an honour in the routine rhythm of regular working life. We can be so caught up in our hopes and our dreams or so set back by our disappointments that we aren't able to live well with contentment in the frankly unimpressive and ordinary situations of life. We can be so focused on what other people are doing that we neglect attending to our own affairs. We can be so skewed by worldly ways of thinking that we can forget the fundamental goodness of, as Paul puts it, working with our hands. If you were with us last week, uh, you'll have seen from the start of chapter 4 what God wants from us and what God wants for us. What God wants from us in verse 1 is that we will live in order to please him. What God wants for us in verse 3 is that we should be sanctified. And then we saw that he began to apply that teaching to the realm of sex and relationships. I think it's no surprise that the next topic he turns to is that of work. Way back at the start of the Bible, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God created the world and created men and women and sent men and women into the world with a commission. They had a job description, Adam and Eve. They were told to fill the earth and subdue it, to populate it and to manage it, to make babies and to do the gardening. Far from being something to look down on, working with your hands is a very godly thing to do. It's what God ordained in the beginning. It's what Jesus did when he came in the flesh and worked as a carpenter. But then in Genesis chapter 3, as Adam and Eve rebel against God in their sin and face the curse, it is no coincidence that these two areas are the ones that are particularly stressed strife between the sexes and pain in childbirth, and toil and labor amid the thorns and thistles. As we seek to please God, and as he works in us that we might be sanctified, it shouldn't surprise us that these areas of life will be both particular points of attack from the devil and particular areas of distinctive witness to those outside the faith. Well, that's a significant preamble. In our few minutes that we've got ahead of us now, I want to draw out three quick lessons from this passage. And we're going to be looking to the present, to the past, and to the future as we see what this passage has to say to us today. Firstly then, and we've touched on this already, be active in the present. Be active in the present. It seems clear from the context of this letter and the next one that there was a problem in Thessalonica when it came to expectations for the return of Jesus. 
Perhaps Paul had preached the urgency of repentance because of the soon return of the Lord Jesus in judgment on the last day. He'd certainly warned them about the wrath of God. We've seen that already in this letter more than once. And faced with that reality, there's nothing else you could consider a higher priority to get sorted in life. However, there was a problem. We don't have to read between the lines too much to work out what that problem seems to have been. Faced with some clear teaching about the soon return of the Lord Jesus, it seems that at least some in the church had given up working and were essentially just waiting passively for Christ's return. In his second letter to them, Paul warns the Thessalonians about being idle. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 6, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. Verse 10 there, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Verse 11, we hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus to settle down and earn the food they eat. As for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Now, we've got to be quite clear about what Paul isn't saying here. He isn't saying that it is wrong not to work when you are unable to do so. Some will have poor health for a short time or a lifetime. Others in their older age will retire, though many serve in voluntary ways at that stage of life. Others will want to work and be searching for work, and that can take time and be a difficult process, particularly in times of economic hardship like we're living through at the moment. And it's important to note, too, that Paul is not against welfare. In fact, it's precisely because he is for welfare that he doesn't want people who are able to work not to be doing so. A glance back at our passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 and 10. The reason he writes so warmly of the Thessalonians' love for one another is that they have been serving one another, not least in meeting one another's needs. That is a good and godly thing to do. Just as it takes generosity to give out of our abundance, so it takes humility to receive in our need, and both are Christian characteristics. The problem here is that some who are able to work are not working, and therefore putting an unnecessary burden on others. They've got their theology wrong about the return of Jesus and therefore they've got their practice in the life of the church and therefore their witness wrong. They're compromised. Paul urges those who can to work. Verse 12, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders so that you will not be dependent on anybody. The God who in creation commissioned his people to be active in the world is not honoured in their lives if they choose to sit by passively only receiving from others when they could be serving others and being generous with their lives. 
Much better that our generosity is directed towards those who are in real need. God is greatly honoured that way. The cliche goes that some people are so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly use. And perhaps you know people like that. They're rightly convinced that Jesus is returning and they're rightly committed to making that news known far and wide. But they go further and they assume that there is no inherent value remaining in our work, this side of glory. Well, that must be wrong. Wrong because the God who created the world and was the first worker in the world sent men and women into the world to work in the world. There's a commission from God that each one of us has in our relationships and our responsibilities to work for the good of others and the glory of God. It's affirmed by Jesus who worked with his hands, affirmed by Paul and other apostles who worked with their hands, affirmed by passages of the Bible like this one, which speak of the good that is done through our work. Which by the way, is why over recent centuries it has been evangelicals who have spurred some of the greatest social changes in Christendom. Why it was evangelicals who pioneered the education of children. Why it was evangelicals who sought to tackle child labour and workhouses. Why it was evangelicals who stood opposed to the transatlantic slave trade and fought for its abolition. The famous reformer and campaigner, the 7th Earl of Shaftesbury, was a man busy with endeavours to serve others and glorify God in this life. He established several campaigning groups and took through Parliament many bills that became laws that changed the prospects of the poor and needy in society. It wasn't because he had lost sight of the coming of Christ, but rather because he was determined to be found ready when Jesus returned. He said, I do not think that in the last 40 years I have lived one conscious hour that was not influenced by the thought of our Lord's return. There is no space in the Christian life for us to be passive, simply waiting for Jesus to come again. We're to be active, working for the good of others and the glory of God. Be active in the present. Well, next, and more briefly, be encouraged by the past. Be encouraged by the past. Here we're looking at verses 13 to 18, though for our purposes today, let's just look at verses 13 and 14. Uh, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Another related problem seems to have grown up in the church in Thessalonica. They were convinced that Jesus was coming back very soon. And so they assumed that they would not die before he came back. It seems as if their faith was shaken When some in their number had passed away, what of them now? Were they saved? Could they have any assurance? Well, Paul says yes, emphatically yes. He doesn't want the Thessalonians to be uninformed, so he teaches them again of the ABCs 
of the Christian faith. One of the good old liturgies simply says, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. And in the uncertainties of loss and grief, Paul reminds this group of believers that these facts about the past give them confidence for the future. The doctrine that he's teaching really is that of union with Christ. That teaches that if you are in Christ through repentance and faith, bound to him by his Holy Spirit, then you will go on the same journey he has gone through. It's like he's the engine of the train and we're the carriages. We follow down the same track as he leads us. For those who have died in Christ, they are united with him as he bursts out of the grave into resurrection life. When he returns, the dead will be raised. There will be a great day of reunion. It's a great word of comfort for us today in the midst of COVID and all that is meant for us. And for those still alive when Christ returns, those who are in him will form a great reception party. The picture is of him, uh, of us going out to meet him and to form an entourage as he returns to make his home among us forever in this remade world in his new creation. We will be with the Lord forever, Paul says in verse 17. And it echoes that great promise that runs through the Bible. They will be my people and I will be their God. It echoes the promises of the psalmist, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It anticipates that great vision of John's of the new creation in Revelation chapter 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. It's the certainty of the events of the past in Jesus' death and resurrection which gives us confidence in this promised future. That is what animates our lives now in our work and our witness. So verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Be encouraged now. And work in hope as you live out your calling to life in Christ. Be active in the present. Be encouraged by the past. Thirdly and finally, be ready for the future. Be ready for the future. And we've seen how Paul has corrected those who were so convinced that Jesus was returning immediately that they'd stopped doing anything useful with their lives. But he wants to warn them of an equal and opposite danger too, that we might become complacent. If we don't believe that Jesus is returning, or we're convinced that it's a long way off, it won't feature in our thinking and our priorities. That too would be a mistake. Throughout history, some people have tried to predict when Jesus will return. And one of my favorites was the American radio presenter, Harold Camping, who got a worldwide audience for his prediction that Judgment Day would take place on May the 21st, 2011, and that the end of the world would take place on October the 21st, 2011. 
May and October 2011 came and went, and the Lord tarried a little longer. It wasn't until March the following year that Camping, quote, humbly acknowledged to his listeners that he had been mistaken and that making such predictions had been unbiblical and even sinful. He could have saved the bother by reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, We won't read it all now, but notice four pictures that the Apostle Paul paints in verses 1 to 11. Firstly, that of a thief in verse 2. If you knew when a thief was coming, you could be relaxed the rest of the time and only alert when you knew the robbery was about to take place. But with thieves about, you must be constantly vigilant. You don't know when they'll strike. Uh, Secondly, that of a pregnant woman in verse 3. You know the labour is coming at some point. It is inevitable. You just don't know when it's going to happen. One moment the waters will break, the contractions will start, the baby will come. Paul is saying, so it will be with the return of Jesus. It'll be sudden, so we must be vigilant. But it is inevitable so we must be prepared. Like a couple might have a hospital bag ready throughout the third trimester. He says, be ready for the future. Be ready for the return of Jesus. Thirdly, the picture of darkness and light, of nighttime and daytime. Darkness and nighttime stands for death. But if we are in Christ, we will be characterized by the things of life, which are light. So when Jesus returns, will we be found busy with the deeds of darkness, caught in the sin that leads to destruction? Or will we be found busy in the deeds of daytime, working for the good of others and the glory of God? And fourthly, that famous picture of the armor of God, faith and love as a breastplate, the hope of salvation as a helmet. Uh, remember uh, chapter 1 and verse 3. Faith, love, and hope looks like work, labor, and endurance. So will we arm ourselves with these godly virtues, clothe ourselves with these characteristics, and be busy? We'll need one another's help, Paul says again at the end of this section. Verse 11, therefore encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. Will we be ready for the future? Will we be encouraged by the past? Will we be active in the present? Let me pray for the Lord's help among us and through us, that those things may be true of us. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and these great truths. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We pray that we will be those who reflect well on these truths of the past, who anticipate rightly what is to come in the future, and who live well now in the light of those things. Help us to work now for the good of others and for your glory.
We ask for the help of your Holy Spirit in that and pray in the name of and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.